Welcome to episode 36 of Literary Disco, The Woman Chaser. Today's episode in three parts. We'll begin with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. And then we will be joined by guest author Jim Gavin to discuss a crazy-ass book that he had us read, The Woman Chaser by Charles Williford. And for those of you participating in Finnegan's Wake Up, which is the reading challenge a bunch of us are currently undertaking, to read five pages a day of Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, in our last segment, I interview my former professor and Joyce scholar Michael Seidel, who has some great advice for how to approach the novel. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Before we do our revisit, um, should we confess or discuss where we each are in Finnegan's Wake right now? I'll go first. I haven't started. I have it on my desk. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm too scared, you guys. I feel the burden of understanding that I must understand once well, I start. Well, I, I can tell you something. You don't have to be burdened by the feeling of understanding because it's impossible that you will understand it. So you can read it freely. I have read 10 pages of Finnegan's Wake, and um, I believe I tweeted this. I may as well have thrown Scrabble pieces on the ground and tried to discern a storyline from that. I have absolutely no idea what I'm reading. It makes absolutely no sense, and I refuse, by law of man, to read three other <laughs> books to explain to me what I've read in ten pages. I refuse to do no, that. No, 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 no. I don't. I, yeah, it's not. It's not about reading three other books to explain to you what you read because that's that's decidedly by not law the of man. Um, I. Yes. I don't want to go into too much detail because I obviously talked about it at length with uh, Michael Seidel at the end of this episode. But yeah, I'm a couple days behind right now. I've definitely lost some drive, and I think a lot of <laughs> and will to live have. as well. No, just just because I think like so much of kind of the fun when you first start is like, can you believe? the way that this book is written and then once you kind of get over that and you're like all right yeah this is the way the book is written then you're just trying to read it and trying to you know bring whatever you can to it and take whatever you can from it and i i mean i'm still enjoying it but just on the language level i find it so pleasing so i don't know and i've had some great discussions and the goodreads uh page is going nuts and i'm enjoying what people are doing and yeah. i'm so impressed with what people are doing um that i I'm still totally on board. And if anybody wants to join in, it's not too late. Not at all. I think the interesting question that we're trying to answer here is, can you read Finnegan's Wake and not be a snotty asshole at the end? I think before the snotty asshole question, the, the real the real question is, can you could you possibly read this book on your own? And I think the answer is absolutely not. Like, to me, the whole point hmm. of this book is to be confounded by it and to share it and to discuss it with other people. So that's why I think the way that we're approaching it is absolutely correct oh cool. i can't wait can't wait and by that i mean i probably won't read anymore <laughs> all right so who wants to actually revisit a book i would love to revisit a book um and this is not a very old book in fact it's a book that just came out um just last year or this year rather i'm sorry um and it is topical today because whitey bulger the boston mob boss was found guilty today on about Ooh. 800 counts of various nefarious deeds um, and I recently read a book, this was just a couple months ago, called Whitey Bulger uh, by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy, who are prize-winning, Pulitzer Prize-winning for, in Kevin Cullen's case, journalists at the Boston Globe. And Whitey Bulger, the book, is an exhaustive um, look at the rise and fall and hiding of Whitey Bulger. So for those of you who aren't familiar with him, and it's in the news now, so by the time you listen, it's still been in the news for a week or so, Whitey Bulger 
um, was a Southie crime lord. Basically, the movie The Departed is based on his life um, in a very fractional sort of way. Um, and he, 10 years ago, he disappeared, or more than 10 years ago at this point, I'm sorry. Um, I think it was 1999, somewhere in there. Um, if I looked at my review that I wrote of the book when I read it, it would probably answer that question. But at any rate, um, he disappeared at about the same time Osama bin Laden went on the uh, FBI's most wanted list. And uh, they were then also caught within a few weeks of each other. So bin Laden was killed in May of 2011, as I remember correctly. And Whitey Bulger was found uh, as a very old man living in an apartment uh, in Santa Monica with his uh, girlfriend, who he had escaped Boston with 15 years previously. And so the book details his rise and fall in hiding and the complicity of the FBI in uh, him being this major crime boss in Boston and how the FBI allowed him to kill and steal and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's one of the single best true crime books, books of nonfiction I've ever read. Whitey Bulger by Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy. You guys should go pick it up. That sounds awesome. Cool. I love that stuff. It, it's a brilliant book. It's about 500 pages long. I reviewed it when it came out um, in Las Vegas City Life. So if you guys are interested, I'll, I'll put up a, a review, a link to the review on our Facebook page. But you know what? It, it, the fascinating thing is they had a ton of sources. So they never got to talk to Bulger himself, but they talked to people that he was in the gang with, basically, and his victims and all sorts of other people. And it's just amazing. And the, the really interesting thing is that the FBI's complicity in his entire career as a criminal is amazing and heartbreaking and awful, of course. But also the, the strange way that he was perceived as sort of like a Robin Hood in Southie. Um, right. where he was, you know, he was a local hero, but he was just the biggest scumbag on earth, and he had, you know, he had dimed out everyone that had ever done anything for him, but he had also played a huge role, he and his brother. So his brother... Hold on, did you just say dimed out? What's hey, that man, mean? I write crime fiction, you know. I know. That's, snitched out these like, dudes. Oh, okay. I thought maybe dimed out meant they did a dime in prison, like they no, gave out no. 10 years. Snitched on them. <laughs> um, okay. And, you know, snitches get stitches. Um, so in addition to being a story of his crime dealings, it's also a story of the relationship that he has with his brother, who became, who was a state senator and was also the president of the University of Massachusetts. So it's this diversion. One guy is a crook and one guy is this political, you know, heavyweight. And it delves into the 1970s uh, segregation and busing issues in inner city Boston and Whitey Bulger's role in, you know, being against busing and how he basically, it, it would seem, did his brother's bidding and blowing stuff up to try and stop busing. It's just an amazing wow. story about um, the history of Boston, the history of Boston politics and the history of Boston organized crime. And so if you're at all compelled by the case that's been on TV for a little while or interested in this guy now that he's been caught and tried and convicted, I absolutely recommend the book Whitey Bulger. Kevin Collin wow. and Shelley Murphy. That sounds so excellent. It is excellent. Um, okay, well, I have a revisit, although it's not a book that I own. It's a book that I encountered out in the world, and it was very exciting. You guys will be very excited. Um so, <laughs> Greg and I were commissioned to write, all right, how, how do I phrase this? All right, to write film sketches for a special collections library at Trinity College. So, comedic um, little 
30 second movies um, through our improv company um, that are about special collections in the library. And um, can I can I t- say something that I just figured out about your improv company? And I only realized when I saw oh someone else say it Don't on your Facebook page. The CT improv. Yeah. The, the pun. I, I had no idea what. Wow, I, Todd. I, that took you, what, four years? CT? You are the last I, of the Mohicans. I was like, oh, oh, God. Do I admit this? I must admit this. Yeah. So it, it's yeah. funny it's because you're in Connecticut. So it's CT. Right. But it's spelled S-E-A-T-E-A. I will forgive you since you live uh, on the West Coast. Okay, so thank you. I'm sorry I interrupted past. your story. Go ahead. So anyway, so um, we were we were hired by the special collections unit of the Trinity Library called the Watkinson Library, which is awesome. Now, um, I love special collections libraries. They have cool shit in there. They're usually in undergrad um, institutions, and the undergrads don't care about how amazing the collections are. So, for example, <laughs> they have um, in Watkinson, they have this, the... One of the only, I forget how many there are, but in Watkinson, they have one of the original Audubon uh, books. So there are these hand-painted birds, and the book is huge. It's like three feet tall with these beautiful hand-painted Audubon birds. So anyway, they have tons and tons of stuff like that. Um, But one of the things uh, that they have is I was there for a meeting, and the librarian, who is the most enthusiastic person I've ever met, he was like, I got my hands on a first edition Leaves of Grass. Oh, my God. And I was like, Whoa. and I was like, well, first, like, which first edition? Because I'm an asshole. And, you know, I know that <laughs> that um, Whitman revised it many times. So it kept coming out in different versions. He has a first, 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 first edition. Oh, my um, God. Wow. 18, That's amazing. 1855. And he took it out and he let me touch it and look at it and like go through it and basically read this book. And it was so beautiful. So what I, and I happen to have just reread the whole thing because I read a book, I led a book club on it at the Twain house. Um, and Whitman is so crazy and wonderful and like 10 times the badass of any other American author, in my opinion. Um, he really was an insane, um, thinker and person. But <laughs> so what I want to talk about for the revisit though is the cover. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but um the cover is like it says leaves of grass, but it looks like a a weird like seventies designed Lord of the Rings cover. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got like vines and grass like dripping off the letters. And I looked at it and I I was like what is this design? It's so strange and kind of sci-fi and otherworldly. And um, and this librarian told me that uh, Whitman himself designed, he drew the cover. So hmm. I can't believe that subsequent editions aren't published with this lettering because it's so crazy looking and so weird, you know, just like the spirit of, of the poem. So... I have my edition of Leaves of Grass, which is like some, you know, $4 Bantam version. It's some beautiful painting of some austere landscape. And I just wish that all Leaves of Grass were published with this photo of the wording here. I'll put it on our Facebook page. It's just so cool. And it was, it was such a great experience to get to look at it. And, like, the type is so big. And it's it's an artifact. It's a, it's a very large book. I, and 
I'm sorry, listeners, I'm gesturing a lot with my hands, but it's, it's, it's like 11 by 17 or bigger, but it's very thin. It's only 90 pages of poems. And it was just, it was so cool. Oh, that's wow. interesting. Cause I actually, I actually own a second edition of Leaves of Grass. Awesome. And it's small and compact. Huh. Um, and my edition is really worn. Like I definitely got like, yeah, it's a second edition, but it's like beaten down. Like somebody carried this around with them for a while. Oh, that's so cool. the, the, the cool part about the second edition the coolest fact about the second edition was that um, he, because Whitman wrote, he sent the first edition to all the famous writers at mm-hmm. the time. Oh, wow. And Emerson wrote him yes, yes. back. And Emerson wrote this famous letter that, that began, you know, I greet you at the beginning of a, of a long career mm-hmm. or a great career or something to that effect. And Whitman, which as a complete, like, faux pas in literary circles at the time published emerson's letter in full in the back of the second edition (laughs) not only that he then put that quote i greet you at the beginning of a long career on the spine of the book (laughs) and so like and 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 my edition is the first edition that did that uh but uh the spine is so rubbed off that you can't see the quote so that's why i was able to afford this second edition otherwise it would have been worth so, a lot more so basically but, it's like the uh, first great book blurb ever is that yeah yeah exactly but then like a lot of emerson's friends like thoreau and all these other writers in that that world were like so offended that Whitman published a personal letter because you know you weren't the idea back then was that you you had to get permission to publish right. people's letters and Emerson had written this essentially as like private correspondence but uh, but Whitman at the at the back of his book he has it's called leave droppings and it's all just like people telling him how great his book is and he included it. He's in the a genius, edition. man. He's genius. He was a genius, and he <laughs> was always revising it. But even in the second edition, "Song of Myself" is is just uh, it's called a "Poem of Walt Whitman in America." Oh. it doesn't have the title song so he was constantly revising the poems and you know but really all of leaves of grass is is wrapped around that one poem which is brilliant and if everyone if anyone listening has not read song of myself go read it right now take 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 an afternoon and is it, it possible to get through i guess maybe it is to get through college or high school english without reading it i I didn't read it in high school. I think so. I don't think people read it in high school I think it's dropped off anymore. a lot of silly... I think it's weird. I think it's... I think people read passages from mm-hmm. it, or they read, like... But I think most high school English classes will take, like, you know, one of his shorter poems, you know, when Lilac's Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, or, you know, they'll pick, like, one of his more classic, shorter poems... Because it is long. I mean, and about 60% of it is just catalogs. Right. It's just lists of things that you could kind of glaze over if you... But I love it. I mean, I think it's mesmerizing. You know what we should do sometime? We should get a high school teacher on the show with us to tell us about, you know, te- what they're teaching and, and, and where we're wrong and what we assume about 16-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> that would probably be fascinating. Okay. All right. Cool. Done. Sounds good. Done. All right, my revisit um, goes back to that essay that Todd brought up at the end of, um, I'm not sure if it was last episode or a couple episodes ago, when, when you brought up that uh, essay on Wild, yeah. on Cheryl Strait's right. Wild. And so I went and read it after we recorded that episode, and it's a really interesting article. Um, I'm I'm not completely, like, I don't understand why the person wrote it. It's kind of a pointless <laughs> article, but I liked some of the points. And w- one of them was just talking about the um, the way that, like, nature writing engages with the the overwhelming vastness of nature and that a lot of nature writing is about that, um, that confrontation with sort of our own meaninglessness in the world. And like, you know, that the way that experiences in nature can teach us something about ourselves because we are forced to confront how small we are and how insignificant we are compared to 
the world at large and nature and the universe. And so I was start, I, uh, reading that essay got me thinking about um, some of my favorite nature writers who have done that and who have, have written that, about that confrontation. And so I wanted to read a poem that is one of my favorites by Gary Snyder. And it's a poem called Paiute Creek. One granite ridge, a tree, would be enough. Or even a rock, a small creek, a bark shred in a pool. Hill beyond hill, folded and twisted, tough trees crammed in thin stone fractures, a huge moon on it all is too much. The mind wanders, a million summers, night air still and the rocks warm, sky over endless mountains. All the junk that goes with being human drops away. Hard rock wavers. Even the heavy presence seems to fail this bubble of a heart. Words in books like a small creek off a high ledge, gone in the dry air. A clear, attentive mind has no meaning, but that which sees is truly seen. No one loves rock, yet here we are. Night chills. A flick in the moonlight slips into juniper shadow. Back there, unseen, cold, proud eyes of cougar or coyote watch me rise and go. And I just love that That's poem. Good poem. And I love Gary Snyder in general. Um, he's one of these authors that I think, you know, growing up as in the 80s and 90s in Northern California, uh, uh, growing up as a child of the Back to Nature movement, there was a lot of ecological writers that I was exposed to as a teenager that I, I don't think are really that popular or that mainstream or maybe they don't get as much attention as they deserve. Um, you know, I brought up Edward Abbey on the show before, but Gary Snyder is definitely one of those. He's He's been teaching at UC Davis for a long time. He, is, he, he had a moment of being very famous in the 60s and 70s because he was considered one of the bees. Yeah, he was like, he was like an ancillary bee, right? Yeah, exactly. He he was sort of the he was one of the first Zen Buddhist scholars in America, and he he was responsible for a lot of the Buddhist thought that entered the Beats because he was friends with Allen Ginsberg, and then he became friends with Kerouac, and Kerouac wrote his novel The Dharma Bums about his experiences with Gary Snyder. But Snyder was always separate from the Beats because he wasn't as much of a countercultural figure. He was always much more of an ecological writer. His he was concerned with you know. Uh, well, with Buddhism, with Native American issues, with um, you know, and issues of the environment and nature, and he was just this really interesting, thoughtful guy. And his essays are incredible, and his poems are beautiful. And I just love him. And he's still alive. He's one of the few beats still alive, or ancillary beats, like you said, that's still alive. And um, I just, yeah, I just love him. And I think um, if anybody wants to dive into some great nature poetry and great nature essays, pick up anything by Gary Snyder. Um, he won the Pulitzer in 1974 for his collection, Turtle Island. But I would start with his first collection, which is Rip Rap. That's what I just read from. And it's he has a poem called Milton by Firelight about reading Milton uh, by Firelight, obviously, <laughs> uh, you know, around a campfire. But it's just, you know, he's just, he writes about nature in such a great way and about that confrontation with nature. Um, so, And I always think of him just it. as sort of the quintessential California poet. And I, yeah. and so, I, you know, because I grew up in Northern California too, like he's always been in my consciousness of someone like a California writer. And so I, I never know yeah. if he's known around the world, but of course he won the Pulitzer. I don't think he is. I don't think he is. That's the thing. I, I don't hear about him, you know, like, and he's been my favorite for so long. He won the Pulitzer when but, we were kids, obviously, or before you were born. Right. But, right. you know, so I mean, maybe you're right. He had that halcyon period, but I, I think he's... He's still, he must still be fairly well known. I mean, 
he's in the pantheon of famous American poets. There's not a ton of them. You know what I mean? And Gary Snyder, I think, is probably one that people, if you at least hear the name, you're like, oh, yes, he and Ferlin Getty, right? Um, right. And he was also an essayist, or still is probably also an essayist, too. So he wrote in some other forms, great too. Essayist. Wow, that sounds great. I've never read anything by him. Yeah, see, Todd, I don't think he, he, his reach didn't quite extend beyond the time and we'll, place. We'll find out some information on Gary Snyder, and we'll do an episode entirely about him. But probably not. <laughs> All right, we'll stick around for Jim Gavin and uh, this crazy fucked up novel he made us read, The Woman Chaser. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> Loved it, too. Oh, should we mention also, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, before we go, in case you haven't made your plans yet, uh, it, it's coming oh, yes. up this week, Fair everybody. Enough. This week is our live show, August 22nd, Barnes & Noble at The Grove in Los Angeles, 7 p.m., with the lovely and talented author Ivy Pachota talking about the book Tampa, the dirty, dirty book Tampa by Alyssa nutting so you guys are going to want to be there if you, if you haven't yet reserved space that's great because you don't have to reserve space you can just show up and we don't know where everyone's going to sit but if uh if it gets crowded you can sit on julia's lap that's yeah. right i'm excited yeah. everybody welcome back to literary disco today we have a very special guest with us and when i say special i mean quite frankly he's got some issues <laughs> we have the fantastic writer jim gavin with us ladies and gentlemen jim gavin round of applause Woo! 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 take gavin! it off Woo! we invited uh, the lovely and talented jim gavin here um because i absolutely loved his book middlemen which is a collection of short stories that came out uh, earlier this year i uh i found jim the old school way um i was alone it was skid row i had 24 dollars in my pocket <laughs> uh, i was reading the los angeles times and uh there was an interview with him in the los angeles times and i thought that dude sounds cool and they reviewed his book, and I thought, that book sounds awesome. And so I bought it, and it was. Um, it's a collection of short stories. Um, and I think, you know, Jim, maybe you could, you prefer something different, but it's broadly about men and work, I would say. Would that be an, an accurate description of it? Yeah, that's accurate. I kind of just, I describe it as a tour of all my failed careers. <laughs> Were you ever a communist dog walker, Jim? Because if not, Julia's got some stories for you. It was a collective. Right, it a was collective. A collective. Right. You're walking like a hundred dogs at once. <laughs> <laughs> for a loaf of bread a week. <laughs> so wait, Jim, what are some of your failed careers that are covered in Middlemen? Um, actually, the longest job I ever had, I worked at a gas station for almost five years and that does that didn't make it into the book um that was actually my best job i succeeded at that yeah and then uh, i was a sports writer for a couple years uh, i worked at the orange county register um covering high school volleyball games and such and uh wow. i burned out of that and then um i had a bunch of jobs in my 20s uh i worked at a software company i worked you know, base, you know, kind of crappy jobs at hotels and restaurants and stuff. Were you the, writing the whole time? Were you all always not new? Here and there. Um, I didn't really start writing seriously until I was about 29 or 30. And I started taking class at UCLA Extension, actually. I, I worked in plumbing 
uh, for a couple years as a, as a toilet salesman. I did that. Oh, uh, my God. Oh, man. Wait, sell us a toilet right now. <laughs> <laughs> you need a place to shit. Done. Yeah. Done. Toilet. They, Sold. They, they literally sell themselves. It's really... It's, <laughs> <laughs> you imagine how bad a salesman you have to be not to be able to sell a toilet, which... Uh, I was that bad. Um, oh, God. So I did that for a while. It wasn't just toilets. I was actually all plumbing fixtures, brass, china. I worked at a game show, Jeopardy, for a little while. You it was did. actually a great job. Was, I got to work on a movie lot and drive around in a golf cart. And, yeah. Jim Jim's book is fantastic. I, I think it's one of the single best collection of short stories I've read in a very long time. I think Jim is sort of in this interesting period, and we'll, I'm going to get academic on your ass here, um, where you're sort of post-dirty realism and still have the ability to look at things sort of cynically in the present day. So it's like a mixture of, you know, the, the guys I loved reading when I was, you know, a kid, 20 years old, and the people that, I'm, that I love reading now that, you know, sort of have my similar sense of humor combined together. If there could be some geese hunting, though, in this, it would really, <laughs> I think that would take it to the next level. I, I remember, I think towards the end of college when I was kind of first getting interested in books, I guess, but I, I came across the term Kmart realism. And I, <laughs> I, I, well, that's actually one of my other jobs. I worked at Kmart and I think I had some notion it was like a whole genre of literature set in Kmart. Like it's just right. Kmart <laughs> stories about and in Kmart. And I was like, well, I, I can be a part of that. I worked at Kmart, but. Yeah, I think they basically meant dirty realism. Right. right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't really think about that. <laughs> I don't think about my place in the canon. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't, When I sit down to compose. I guess my stuff is pretty low to the ground. Um, one of the stories in the collection is actually a, kind of about working at Jeopardy, and that one is maybe a little more... It has more of an amplified reality, but I think I am uh, all, all the writers who kind of fall into someone like Tobias Wolf or mm-hmm. Raymond Carver. I mean, I, I love all the, all those guys. And um, well, you're you're the only person I've ever seen who has blurbs on their book from Jim Shepard, who's a genius, and Patton Oswalt, who's a genius of a different kind. Right. <laughs> How did good blurb? Patton Oswalt seems like a really odd. Oh, you know, we'll get Patton. Oh, Oswalt he was for actually this. one of the first people I thought of. I mean, he, uh, you know, I think I would say he's the only comedian I know who has like a a punchline that's of Tilly Olson, you know, like, you know, so, you know, he has very literary, he has his chops, you know, but, right. um, his book came out a couple of years ago, zombie spaceship wasteland. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing. And, but it had the same publisher. So when I, I, I basically just asked my editor, just like took a flyer. I was like, send it along. Maybe he'll read it. And he did. He was incredibly generous. It was awesome. So, um, so before this book was published, you would, you, these, all these stories appeared, a bunch of different places you did the whole literary magazine route um a lot of a, a few of them were published after this book was accepted okay um that probably helped um uh, but i mean all, I, like all these stories in here have been rejected everywhere really know, and, um so I mean, it's yeah. part of the deal i guess well tell tell us a bit about um and this is i, I need to hear this for a couple reasons one out of my unbridled jealousy and two because I don't believe this ever actually happens. Tell us, tell us about being in the kind of blind luck. It was, I mean, it was unsolicited. I didn't have an agent. It was um, a very 
dear friend, amazing writer, Suzanne Rebecca. Her collection, Death is Not an Option, is I think one of the best things the last five or six years. She she knew she was in touch with an editor at the New Yorker, but she basically took a story of mine and sent it to this editor to say, you should look at this. And that was, that was in like May of whatever year it was, uh, 2010. And I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. And then like six months later, I got an email saying, hey, we're taking your story. So, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, so cool. Oh my God. So I can't really say it was like a slush pile because it was, right. but yeah, they, you know, I had really published nothing else before that. So they, they did take a chance and I'm incredibly thankful for it. Did things change like immediately for you or, because yeah, of I mean, really? Uh, it's really it, it, <laughs> it is everything. It helps, yeah. you know. So, but I mean, the good thing was I, I I did have a book. Like I was ready for it. So like I didn't really start looking for an agent and stuff until I had finished a book. And I I think that was a a good way to go. So um, you always intended these stories to be a book, a collection. Yeah. At some point, I realized I had these stories, and then I realized I saw the shape of the book. Um, I feel like you don't really. I think you're done with the collection when you start taking stories out mm-hmm. to kind of make it more of a coherent, and that happened. And so, um, so yeah, when I find, when I got a an incredible break, I was kind of I was ready for it. So yeah, yeah. I mean that's not even a break though. That's like that's like an athlete playing high school baseball, and then the next day the Yankees call and say, hey, you know what? We'd like you to pitch for us <laughs> tonight yeah. at yeah. Yankee Stadium. Yeah, and um, then. Uh, I, Blows out his knee in his first game, so um, <laughs> or, gets, or gets hit by a line drive in the head and dies. Right, dies. Well, while you were talking, I ordered your book online. So, oh. good pitch. Wow. I, Thank you. I own it now. I mean, it's not. <laughs> it's not like you didn't. You didn't know he was going to be on the show. I mean, I don't. I don't want this to be awkward Listen, okay, for the I listeners. Other books to read that he selected. I, I'd much rather you guys re- read the this Williford book. Well, so let, let's get into this a little bit. So when we have guests on, for those of you listening for the first time, and I don't know what the hell's taking me so long. When we have guests on, we actually have them pick the book that we're going to read, and the book that Jim picked is the Woman Chaser by Charles Williford, um, a Williford book I had not read previously. And I don't know if you guys all have the same version that I have, where it says, now a major motion picture starring Patrick Warburton, mm-hmm. uh, a series of words mm-hmm. that have never <laughs> been combined together in, uh, in advertising ever. <laughs> well, I was telling, oh, we could get talk about it more, but I was telling right, the, the movie version by Robinson DeVore is brilliant. It's really? so good, yeah. We could talk about that after we talk about the book. But. It, it makes sense to me. I mean, reading it, I was actually like, this would probably be a cooler movie than a, and then a book, just because all the meta stuff becomes yeah. even more meta and fun. Tell us why you wanted us to read The Woman Chaser. Well, I'd actually, I, I'd, I think I actually saw the movie first when it came out in 1999, and I thought it was brilliant. And three or four years later, I, I found a copy of the book. I loved it. And it, there's, there's like a scene in the book, I mean, the plot basically is a... <laughs> A borderline personality named Richard Hudson is a used car salesman, has an existential crisis in like 1960 L.A. And he decides the only way he can kind of, he, he wants to make a movie to sum up his life experience. I, I was kind of blown away by Williford. It's my first Willow, time reading Williford and how kind of weirdly postmodern. This was 1960. It's really the way the narrative works and stuff. It's I couldn't all, believe it when it started. Yeah. I, I assumed yeah. just be, be, mostly because of the uh, the design that it was a pulpy sort of, you know, detective it, story or whatever. Yeah. And then you open it up and it's like written with script format. 
you know, <laughs> yeah. and then like, and it's it's self conscious. The narrator says like, uh, I can't write in third person, so I'm just gonna write <laughs> really in first weird. person. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this feels yeah. like a, a book written for in the '90s or something. Right. It had this. I kept checking the publication. Yeah. I, over and it, over. It felt like somebody had time traveled to the '60s. <laughs> like I, I had just opened it up and it had a copyright date of 1998 in it, and I knew Williford had been dead, but by then, and I was like, oh, okay, so maybe it came out just in '98. And then I'm reading it, and there's a scene where they're talking about what people earn, and you know, someone gets 65 <laughs> bucks a day in LA and 75 bucks a day in San Francisco. And this is like 30 pages into the book. I was like, what? when was this written? And I had to go back and look again. <laughs> really bizarre. Yeah. yeah. That whole and it, time it was published it. by like a pulp press, and I kind of don't know how he, I don't know who accepted this. I mean, it wasn't right. published by like a prestige pre- you know, right. literary <laughs> press. Like, yeah. Um, this, yeah, I mean, this wasn't, yeah, Viking publishing. You know, V by Pynchon and whatever sixty one <laughs> right. or something. But like, yeah, um, so yeah. So the book is—it's hilarious. Um, it captures LA in a really, in a in a way that's really memorable. And and just the voice of it. That this type of narrator kind of shows up in a lot of his early kind of pulp novels. Mm-hmm. And he this these guys who are basically kind of sociopaths, like hiding hiding in plain sight. Yeah, and. Williford was, uh, I mean, he had a crazy life. He was in the army for 20 years and was a decorated soldier, World War II. And he tells this story about, like, after the Battle of the Bulge, his platoon had captured a bunch of German soldiers, and they were kind of keeping them, uh, like, locked up. And he walked back into the woods, and all his fellow soldiers were basically lining up the German POWs and and shooting them for sport, basically. Oh, Jesus. Just murdering these guys. Right. And... He, I know, what he said was, like those those guys who are murdering those German soldiers are going to go back and be insurance salesmen in America, mm, right? And he said that's that's my, those are my protagonists. Like mm-hmm. um, that's what that's exactly right. Yeah, that's what and, this guy feels like. It's... And so Richard Hudson kind of once I read that, like all of Williford's work kind of came yes. into like. Even the uh, Hoke Mosley books come into play. Like, yeah. it all makes perfect sense. In a way, I kind of wish I'd known that beforehand because <laughs> I kept rooting for this guy no, way I, after I totally, shouldn't have. Totally. You know, there's something, I mean, obviously, just, uh, you know, the, the, the nature of a narrator, you, you yeah. want to root for him, you're sympathetic. And I kept thinking maybe this book was going to go the way of, like, Pointman and Samara or <laughs> The Movie Goer, you know, where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it is or, or a revolutionary road, you know, one of these, like, my life is so boring. I need to change it up and become an artist, or you know, and and that was actually going to be a good thing. But then I was like, God, this guy's kind of a prick. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah. and then what's the deal with his mom? There's like this oh, crazy God. ancestral relationship. There's so. And, but it well, took me so. It, it took yeah. me way too long to like. I was just. I kept waiting for this <laughs> guy to redeem himself. You didn't know himself. that he and his mom were having an issue, and the first time he sees her, she takes off her shirt and he examines her tits. Yeah, like that. That wasn't. Her, that was a red flag. And jutting breasts. <laughs> okay, it was a red flag, think, but it was a red flag. I was thinking. Okay, well, maybe this guy's got some really messed up backstory that we're going to get and we're going to be on his side. But then he just becomes a worse and worse. I mean, mainly it's the way he treats women. It's just worse and worse yeah. throughout the book. Yeah, can we go back to something you said, though, Ryder, real quick? Which yeah. is, you mentioned the mo- the book The Movie Goer. Yeah. And I was thinking about that all the way throughout. So for the listeners that might not be familiar, The Moviegoer was a book that came out in 1961 by Walker Percy. Right. But I was thinking about the same thing. And, yeah. and the crazy thing is, The Moviegoer... Revolutionary Road and this book all came out within six months of each other. Really? And all wow. three of them encapsulate that same sort of, um, 
suburban malaise. You know, yeah. the moviegoer in this book share a lot of stuff about, you know, what reality is and right. um, and and you know what what to take away from film and all that stuff that's you know left most of the sidelines in Revolutionary Road, but they are really three books of a type yeah. that are written completely independently of one another by writers who probably never intersected. There's a scene, a woman chaser, where he's selling, he's doing really well as a used car salesman, but he has this restlessness and he goes to a, a Toastmasters. Yes, oh, which is all these kind of like moment. Yeah, upstanding, God. all these kind of upstanding square dudes of that time, you know, right. giving little speeches about their business and, and stuff. And he, that's when he has his, exiden- his existential crisis and he, he runs out and it's great, you know, and that's yeah. when he decides, it, it, he becomes an artist. This is, book's right. also like a right. portrait of an artist <laughs> as a sociopath, basically. Right. And, and so there, that scene, I, I have this marked here, he says, so he's, he's just run out of this Toastmasters meeting and he says, by the time I reached my car in the parking lot, I was blubbering. These men were prisoners and yet they were unaware of their plight because they were also their own jailers. A feeling of revulsion and terror swept through me. I sat in my car, hanging onto the steering wheel for dear life, and I let the salty tears flow. It was the first time I had cried like that since reaching manhood. It was the waste, I thought, the foolish waste, the dullness of their lives, the daily repetition of meaningless tasks, the stupidity of such an existence, and underlying everything, all of my thoughts were jumbled together. They didn't know! (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God! Yeah. (laughs) I think that that was great, and and I agree that it falls into the genre with those other books, but what I really loved about this, what I think was an insane novel, (laughs) is that it marries that with a totally unpretentious, you know, noir pulp voice. You know, it's not up on its high horse. It's, like, including all these crazy details. Like, my pretty much my entire experience of reading this book could be encapsulated in the one paragraph where... He meets his um, adopted or stepsister Mm -hmm. or whatever. They're not blood related, but it's his sister and she's 16. And he's like, I pulled her to me and I kissed her on the mouth. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's like Noari and it's the 60s. So I guess maybe people kissed on the mouth more. And then the next (laughs) line is like, I experimentally ran my tongue across her teeth. (laughs) And I was like, ah. So that's the whole novel. You think that. You're getting into this style that you can agree with or, and are familiar right. with, and then it completely freaks you out with some horrible detail. Yeah. I was about to give a big spoiler, something that happens at the end, which I think we should not spoil, but it's there's a lot of shock in mm-hmm. it right. yeah. and because of that. He, the tone is so matter-of-fact. He never lingers on anything that's just happening, like, right. which is kind of a trait of a sociopath, right? There's no, there's no, <laughs> you just go forward. And there's so many great details too, like, um, that he has these amazing, he sets up this incredible used car lot and it's doing so well. And he has these three top salesmen that he's worked for months to find. And then he makes them all wear Santa suits <laughs> and they all quit. Yeah. In August, Santa suits in August. Right. So those are the details that I think really set, really set this book apart from a typical suburban malaise. I mean, one of the things that I marked was the initial description of the mother is like the greatest thing yes. ever. Oh yeah, so I don't know. It if I used can find a it. word that I had to look up. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's p h s t i s t i c. Yes. Well, <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? I looked it up. Oh, wow, and it means remember. suffering from tuberculosis. <laughs> but he puts, he says she's a, she's a fistic beauty or fistic beauty. So in a way he's saying like, she's basically like a sickly good looking woman. And it was just such a weird word and, and a weird description. And, uh, and he sexualizes his mom from mm-hmm. the moment she enters the book. It is. Yeah. I, 
When we, and so we, should, we should give a little bit of uh, some, some secondary details. So this guy, Richard, he's a used car salesman from San Francisco. He's starting a used car lot in Los Angeles for uh, the man he works for, Honest Hal. And uh, he moves back to L.A. where his family lives. His mother is a former dancer, and she has a series of ex-husbands, including uh, one who wrote Jingles. Uh, most notably the Lumpy Grits jingle that she has sustained herself on. And Williford actually uh, has the jingle in the book on page 25. Um, it's a jaunty tune. It's a little bit like the Hobbit songs, I think, in my opinion. <laughs> Lumpy Grits, ain't nothing to serve, no hungry man. Lumpy Grits. Anyway. Hungry man. <laughs> um, she's presently, or currently rather, living with her latest husband, um, Leo, who is a basically a failed Hollywood film producer. And Leo is only seven years older than the narrator. Um, and Leo has a 16-year-old daughter that um, Julia just discussed in loving terms a moment ago. So he goes and he lives with them, and it's while living with them that he, does, he has this existential crisis of selling used cars and decides, oh, I want to make a movie. And he gets his uh, stepfather, Leo, invested in this movie as well. And it just becomes a, you know, like it's kind of a dystopian nightmare of filmmaking that happens next. But it's, it is really interesting to, to that, that, you know, I thought of the moviegoer and like you were, and the, and the revolutionary road. And it, it is interesting that it points thematically to a lot of the same issues, but just deals with them in a completely different way. Essentially, you know, because those books to me feel, you know, the, the, it, the characters are, it's about inaction, right? It's about characters mm-hmm. who don't do anything and they're just worried. They have this existential. This is about the guy who does something. And what right. he does is so insane. And, you know, I'm going to make a movie and rewrite the way Hollywood works. And then I'm going to screw all these women. And it's like it, he's, he's, at, he's constantly doing action. And in fact, there's a whole discussion at one point where a guy, um, his, his stepfather who's producing the movie with him is like testing him. Like, do you understand how to write screenplays? And he says, well, what's the difference between movement and action? And he has this nice passage where he's like, well, movement is just walking around and doing stuff. Action is story. Action is when somebody actually does something that affects change. And that's a, in a way it kind of describes what this character, this protagonist does as opposed to the protagonist of Revolutionary Road or the moviegoer, where where or like you know Camus, the Stranger, or you know b- books of that focus on this sort of malaise or this ennui, yeah. but people don't do anything about it, you know, they, or if they do something about it, it's like they don't even understand why they do it. This guy knows exactly what he's doing <laughs> and he's going for it. He's he's going to mm-hmm. achieve the American dream at all at any cost. And uh, you know, I don't want to give it give yeah. it away. But that's a I think that's a brilliant yeah. take on it. And there's a one of my favorite, yeah. There's actually, I think, a writer can learn a lot from reading this book. Yeah. Yes, a, absolutely. A, 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 I agree. A friend of mine, uh, Skip Horak, who's a great writer. He, there's a scene in The Woman Chaser where uh, Richard Hudson, the used cars salesman, he's hired a guy to run his lot. He's like a former first sergeant, a guy who's never had a civilian job. Uh, so he hires this very uh, dependable army guy to run his lot, and then later when Richard Hudson's trying to write his movie he's struggling and he asks his writing advice from this former staff sergeant in the army who gives like a page description of how to like <laughs> what and it's brilliant it's like one it of the is. most concise uh <laughs> practical uh 
pieces of writing advice you'll ever read. My friend Skip used to hand that out to his students. <laughs> a page from the Woman <laughs> that's Chaser. Awesome. Um, yeah. So you know what? It, 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 it's not it's a like, bad yeah, idea. That's how he starts I mean, writing. It's about revision. Yeah, he's like, yeah, just got to start writing. Don't think it's a first. Yeah, it's yeah. a perfect. Yeah, it's yeah. true. You just don't want and the class to then read the rest of the book, right? Right. You don't want to get into that scene we were we're not going to discuss. Apparently, right. that we're not. Yeah. yeah. But this, I mean, I think one thing we haven't really said yet because the plot is so diverting and you know so engrossing is that some of the writing in here is really fantastic Mm -hmm. so there's a um when they're looking to cast the movie um someone is describing to richard um a a guy who's been an extra in a ton of movies Mm -hmm. and i just thought this was the greatest thing (laughs) this this list um so he's like you know you've seen him you've seen him in a bunch of movies all right and now i'm quoting You've seen him, I know. He's the guy who stands there or sits there in a scene and never says anything. If you need five tough guys to sit in a car waiting to blast somebody coming out of a building, he's one of the five guys in the car. (laughs) If some criminals are waiting to be tried by a judge in a courtroom scene, he's waiting to be tried and he always looks guilty. He stands by elevators. He eats lunch in restaurants. In westerns, he's the guy at the end of the bar drinking rye. Once in a while, he carries the rope at a lynching. It's so good. I know. No. Unbelievable! That is like a that's such a good monologue. I love it. There, that, that's that's a real that's the beginning of a really weird section of the book yes. where they're going around casting the movie. And um, I just found it so interesting. I mean, maybe just because I've been in Hollywood forever, and but the idea that like because you know there's this sort of Hollywood myth of you know like you'll get discovered at the pool at a hotel and somebody right. say you have a star kid and then so and so he goes around doing that. For like multiple people, he does like, it at the farmers market. Yeah, he goes to the farmers market and like finds a housewife and is like, "You're gonna Follows be in my home." home. Yeah. He finds the most like depressed, broken looking housewife. <laughs> yes, yes. you're perfect. It's so weird, and 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 it's it's just such a weird thing because he has this revelation at the Toastmasters. Uh, you know, when he decides to make this movie, it's because of this sort of the American dream is gone, and I'm gonna I need to have, you know the American dream doesn't satisfy. We need to make art. We need to create something in order to have you know. Or for our lives to have meaning, and then he goes around giving that opportunity to these people. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's this one that he finds this out of work actor to be his male lead, who's like up in Ojai, and you know, he he has this moment where he falls to his knees. You know, he's like, "I've been waiting for this my entire life." He's shaking. For, I've been doing you know summer stock, and I've just been waiting for some producer to come up and say, "You're going to be the star of my movie." <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was so sad and weird, and it, I just, I, it was such an interesting series of scenes that I still don't quite know what to think about that. But just the idea that this guy is like, "I, the American dream is broken," and then I'm going to go around. Uh, giving everybody their Hollywood American mm-hmm. dream. Like, I'm going to do that. Yeah, I, I love that because another thing that I think sets it apart from this huge genre of people having existential crises is that he's not having an existential crisis. Re- I mean, he is, but he's observing it in other people and right. he essentially wants to be their fairy godmother, right. you right. know, which is, it's it's not self-absorbed, really. Like, I guys, I think I've said this on this podcast before, I've been to Toastmasters. I've taught <laughs> improv at Toastmasters. But when I went in there, I had the exact same experience of, like, this is the most depressing, like, this is sad. This is so sad. It was, like, IT guys, the, you know, the 2013 version of this is, like, IT dudes talking about, like, 
the product that they're selling, like practicing talking about that. And it is so unbelievably depressing. But the fact that this character can go out. My mom used to like solely date Toastmasters. Like that was her thing. Like 1976 to 1982, only fucking Toastmasters. That was that was my mom. But you know, I just want to pick Don't up on. Don't cut that writer. I, I want that in the episode. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna, uh, picking up on what you said, though, Julia, the fairy godmother point. He does kind of achieve that, doesn't he? I mean, I don't think we're giving. Yeah. Any, I don't think we're ruining anything by saying that like his dream doesn't really you know pan out. But uh, everybody else gets a lot from. Except Everyone for the women. A, That's, yes, I guess the women. The, film. the women literally well, and figuratively get right, fucked, but right. but and abused, but right. uh, uh, and but, raped. But it, like his uncle does kind of come back, you know, and people do make money, and these actors end up sort of having career, or you assume that they're brought out into the limelight. So in a way, he his action, his like impulse to do something, does achieve results. You know, it's just not yeah. so it great for him. Even the rape, even the rape, which <laughs> I. I'm obviously wholly against rape and have taken down other books on this podcast because they were so sexist. Even the rape fits in that category. It's that this girl, I won't name who it is, comes into his room and says, like, I want to lose my virginity to you. And he essentially reasons out, like, well, then I'm going to rape her so she'll leave me alone. Which is horrifying, horrifying. But it's also this weird it's the same experience of she's coming to him and she's saying like make my dreams come true and then he gives her a completely fucked up version of what she thinks is gonna happen right because he know his rationalization is if he takes her virginity in a romantic way she'll cling to him and right. always have this awful you know heartbreak whereas right now if he just rapes her gets her virginity over with she'll take the experience for what it is and he'll get something it's awful it's like it's the awful. worst calculation ever and yeah that, that's and about yet, the point where I was like where is beautiful in its way no no, it's not. No. <laughs> it's not. There's just no. It's yeah. just all over the place, but in a really coherent, unique way. This this book, as I was reading it, I was like, who would have published this book in 1960? But I, I can't imagine this met with a great critical acclaim in 1960. I'm going to come out and say, I, I think I love this book. <laughs> <laughs> and I hated myself. I was like, how can I love this so much, but I was so surprised by it at every turn. Every weird section, every narrative gambit that never got picked up again. <laughs> I loved it all. Well, Jim, thank you so much for selecting The Woman Chaser by Charles Williford. It was a fucking bizarre book. And thank you for writing a great book, Middlemen, um, Stories by Jim Gavin. I'm holding it up like the audience can see it. I'm just looking at myself right now. It's a little weird. <laughs> Um, but sometimes right. you just do some all night. So, listeners, we recommend you go out and get Jim's book, Middleman. It's it's weird. It's funny. It's sad. Um, it's better than anything that you'd ever read about Kmart. I think, just generally speaking. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Exactly. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Our pleasure. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Everybody, welcome back to Literary Disco. I am joined right now by my professor from Columbia University, Michael Seidel. Michael Seidel was born in New York City, but he received his undergraduate and graduate education at UCLA. And in 1970, he joined the faculty at Yale. And in 1977, he went to Columbia, where he became the Jesse and George Siegel Professor in Literature and Humanities. He was the chair of the infamous and 
I must add, amazing literature humanities course, a required year-long survey of Western literature that helps make Columbia, in my entirely biased opinion, the greatest school on earth. Uh, he's written extensively on 18th century literature, narrative theory, satire, and of course, James Joyce. He also is an expert in baseball with biographies of both Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio to his name. In 2001, I had the good fortune to attend Professor Seidel's semester-long course on James Joyce, which was a remarkable class that covered everything Joyce had written except Finnegan's Wake. Uh, well, we actually, we did look at one page of Finnegan's Wake, if I remember correctly. Um, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me a little about this incredibly dense and strange book. So we're a week and a day into this communal reading project um, with a bunch of our brave listeners. And so far, my feeling, um, which I didn't really expect, is that five pages a day is way too much. I mean, I've just never felt more obtuse in my life. Do you have any advice for like some of the ideas that we should maybe know going into this project? Well, I mean, I could, if, if you ask for advice, I could go on for months uh, <laughs> with, with this book. I, I mean, I, I did at the request of some of the students in the very class that you took at Columbia yeah. who wanted to go on and do more, Joyce. I did agree to do an undergraduate seminar, and this was after you left Columbia. Right. And I did it three times, and it was, it was really uh, wonderful. But I told the students that if they're looking at me as someone who could answer all of their questions about uh, this book, that that was not going to work. I knew what I knew, and I tried to know some more, but the, the, the text is endlessly fascinating, difficult, enjoyable, mysterious, opaque. But Joyce knew this. He truly knew this, and he thought of it uh, as an exercise in reading that ought to be fun for people engaging it. And he knew that people weren't going to be able to follow it line by line. But he, he's got a phrase somewhere in Finnegan's Wake. I, I can't locate it exactly. He says, wipe your glosses with what you know. Wipe your glasses with what you know. Wipe your glosses with what you know. So what he, I think, felt is that, you know, everybody's going to know something about the book and about the sentences and about the phrases. And maybe the best way is for people to get together and just all together wipe their glasses with what they know. So was it different every time that you taught the, the seminar? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, it, different every time in, in terms of, of, you know, what we emphasize in the class or what the students emphasize in the class, and different even from time to time in, in what we did with the same passages. How many times have you read the book? Well, I've read it about maybe seven or eight times since I was in my 20s. Wow. Um, and that would be seven or eight times completely through. Independently of that, I've read sections of it or, you know, pages of it. Um, I still read a page or two of it uh, every week just for fun. There, there are things that, that you can do, I mean, that can be done that are immensely, you know, rich and rewarding in terms of reading this book. One of them is to get a firm grasp on the Irish-American ballad Finnegan's Wake, because so much of the book replays that ballad in, in various forms. It's about a guy who's a hod carrier. He carries the, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you cement bricks with. Mm -hmm. Falls off a ladder and he dies. He's waked in an Irish tradition, Irish-American tradition. And he sees
sees everybody having such fun at his wake that he gets up out of his coffin and joins in. So, you know, the title of the book, Finn, Finnegan's Wake, is also Finn's Again Awake. Right. Uh, you, you just can't kill the corpse. Um, and and that, that, for Joyce, is the, you know, the, the essential quality of the book's comedy. Like Ibsen's When We Dead Awaken, nothing ends. It just keeps going on in a different form. So the, the main character in the book is really all human characters, H-C-E, here comes everybody. And the family in the book is every family, although it's also Joyce's family. And the book is also Joyce's autobiography. But it's so many other things. It's so many other things. It's the history of Finn McCool, the Irish hero. The Cycles of Human History by Gian Battista Vico. It's so many of these things. But you don't really have to know these things. You have to sort of come by them. They're kind of glosses. Mostly, you know, you just try and read the texture of a line and see how much Joyce jams into it. I do think that, that his work is all autobiographical, that he's obsessed by his, his, his own work, his own art, and his, the relation of that art to his, his nation, his country, his family, his, his friends, uh, his environment, Ireland, Ireland's politics. All of that is in Finnegan's Wake, just as it's all uh, in Ulysses. But, you know, to call a book Ulysses, <laughs> you know, is to suggest that the circumstances for Joyce expand out into the world of literature at large. Mm-hmm. And th- th- that same impulse is true in Finnegan's Wake. Whenever he thought of anything about himself, he identified with other things in human history, other literary patterns in human history, other writers, um, other the works that those writers had produced. Uh, so his mind was constantly expanding and grasping on to other things that he could uh, became inclusive for him. So much of the, the 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 project of reading Ulysses is figuring out a sort of like what's happening just on a level of plot, you know, like mm-hmm. what 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 is the actual events going on, and then finding all these fun illusions or puzzles or. So, you know, like you feel like Joyce is pointing outside of the text to a bunch of other texts or other things, but I with Finnegan's Wake, that's happening on so many levels at once. It's, I, I guess, how important is even plot as a concept? Well, yeah, people have said that it's it's you know it's really just a, a kind of nightmare book, um, <laughs> set set at night. And uh, it's it's to be you know interpreted as a dream. It's 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 not to have a coherent and cohesive plot. Um, and you know to a measure that's true. But on the other hand, you know if you want to get your moorings in in the book, there is a plot, and it's it's a uh, it's a plot that can be tracked and marked. Um, and it has to do with that central family around the pub in a certain geographical position near Wellington's Monument in Phoenix Park. The family uh, consists of two twins, I mean, one twin, <laughs> that, uh, uh, Sean and Shem, uh, a young girl, Issy, Isabella, a father, H.C.E., here comes everybody, a mother, and Olivia Plurabelle. The father is also, you know, Hoth Head in, L- in Dublin, and the mother is also the river, the River Liffey. Um, and the children are tributaries in, 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 you know, in essence. But it's still a family, and the, 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 the family dynamic is Joyce's family dynamic in, in a way. The rivalry among the brothers, the sort of half-incest 
love relationship among the male-female members in the family, the position of the Irish mother, the nature of the Irish father is a publican who tells, you know, stories in bars all night long. The, the scene is set in the pub. The father figure, H.E., he has had two bad incidents before the evening starts. One is near a loo, a public bathroom in Phoenix Park, and another is he, he gets beaten up on the way home. He gets back to the pub, and the customers are there for the rest of the evening. There's a school lesson for the, for the kids, for the young kids. He drinks all the dregs of his customers' Guinnesses before he goes to bed. He stumbles on the stairs up, uh, going up to his bedroom. He tries to make love to his wife, and he can't. Uh, the children cry in the middle of the night, and Aunt Olivia goes into a long reverie a la Molly Bloom at the end of the book. Uh, and the book will then circle around to the sent very sentence. The last sentence will circle around to the very sentence that the book begins with. Right. So there is a plot. It's a minimal plot. It's a nighttime plot as opposed to Ulysses' daytime plot. But it's a plot, and there's a family dynamic there. Maybe the marriage is sort of dying. Maybe the sons are in rivalry with the father. Maybe the younger daughter, Issy, is in rivalry with the mother. Maybe there's sexual tensions all over the place. These things are happening uh, in the book, and, you know, you begin to track them if you want to read it that way. But at the same time, you know, the language is delicious. I mean, so many other things are going on. Well, that's what I can't get over is, like, how much fun I'm having, even when I have no idea what's going on. Well, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, th that's the way he sort of organizes his material. He'll have a basic kind of or plot situation, but then it will just explode and expand to sort of all universal time. Just as, the, you know, the, the Finnegan falling off the ladder is, you know, the fall of mankind. Yeah. So all throughout the book, you'll have these sort of cascading ladders language will just collapse on itself. It's, it's, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable effort. What do you think about, I mean, what do you, I mean, how often do people tell you that they're going to read Finnegan's Wake? I mean, what do you, do you even recommend this book to people or do you say? No, I, I, I don't recommend it. I, really? I, I say if you, yeah, if you want to engage in something that's just in, in, you know, an incredible experience, do it as long as it gives you pleasure. If, if, if you're fighting it and you're resisting it, uh, what's the point? It, right. That's that would Joy, Joyce would uh, be appalled at such a notion. Right. It's, it's all he asked for his people reading his books. I mean, it, it's even Ulysses. It's somebody would tell him that they read or tried reading Ulysses, and Joyce would say only one thing: "Did you think it was funny?" Yeah. That was his response. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure that that his reaction to Finnegan's Wake is the same. If, if people were enjoying it, I think he'd tell them to stop. Well, it's funny because uh, some people on our, our our website have been commenting, and, and some people are like, is this just a joke that he's playing on us, the readers, you know? And my response, I, I haven't actually written this to them, but my response is like, I think it is a kind uh, of a you're joke. Right. But it's not yeah. a joke in the sense that it's a cruel prank, or it's it, but it is kind of just about having fun and just he has the vowels he has you you, you may notice throughout the, the 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 book that he plays on the vowels a e i o u he has them at one point laugh you know 
Yeah. Uh, uh, ha ha he oh you. I mean the the vowels are hysterical. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's what he does. Do you have a favorite section or a favorite? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, uh, um, I, I mean, the, you know, the the standards are the the Aunt Olivia Plurabelle section, which is all about rivers. Um, the the language breaks apart so that almost every word is a pun on 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 a river. Oh. I love that section. I think it's absolutely beautiful. I think the end of the book is I- extraordinary. I do like the the a, a lot of the major Finnegan um, uh, HCE sections when they're when he's. He's being hounded in a kind of kind of fox chase. That happens pretty early. But uh, it's it's almost not section by section that I like. I like certain passages that I just think are just extraordinarily well done. And then you know, ninety five percent of it I can't understand. So you know, what the heck? Really, you you <laughs> still you still feel that way? Even oh, after... of course, of course, of <laughs> course. I mean, it'd be crazy to try to. I mean, I've heard. Some of the most brilliant joy scholars sit in the room and, and, and fiddle with some of these passages and get very, I mean, just get almost nowhere. Right. I mean, Joyce's head, I mean, he's, he's got it all figured out, but uh, um, it doesn't open up easily. It's language broken down so that so much else can enter in. Right. And it's, a lot of it is, is, is associative. A lot of it is illusionary. In other words, I mean, there's, there's many, many works in there that, that uh, you know, we just don't know that Joyce had read. I mean, he was voracious. Well, but what about the Vico connection? Well, the Vico is cycle, cycles of history. I mean, he truly believes that, that historical cycles just keep repeating in different forms. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the book is generally organized on the ages of man that Vico set out. But that's a structural device that's of interest and of use. But, you know, and if you want to read Vico and, and get some notions of Vico's you know, sense of language and sense of history, Joyce did admire it and he did believe in it. But that's not necessarily going to help you read on a page-for-page basis. It just helps you understand that, that for Joyce, history can cycle through all kinds of dimensions of human space and time. Mm. The same patterns, same patterns that exist in, in you know, uh, uh, medieval times can exist in a different way. Uh, in modern times, and that's essentially the Viconian uh, cycle. But I, I wouldn't—that's not going to be a key that's going to elaborate for you. So it's not like it's not like Ulysses, where reading Homer kind of. Well, even in Ulysses, I don't. Do you think reading Homer really helps? Reading understand? Homer just—it it hinges you on some of the basic plot elements, but it doesn't tell you what Joyce is doing with language. Right. And you know, reading Vico is not going to tell you what Joyce is doing with language. Reading, you know, Lewis Carroll, Jabberwocky will come closer. Um, and that he but, did explicitly say that he was inspired he, by that, and right? he, he did. Yeah. yeah, he did. I mean, he says he was breaking words apart and putting them together the way uh, Lewis Carroll did. But it's much more, much more elusive than Lewis Carroll. In other words, there's so many more books and other material that's jammed into that text. But if you're, you know, if you're asking me, do I, do I see any kind of a key in it? It, it, it the, the eighth or ninth or tenth time around, I really do see the family dynamic as the, the the key issue for Joyce. Uh, I mean, I think it was in Ulysses, too. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't think he's left, he's left that theme. I, I think he's, he's just obsessed with the relationship of, you know, inside the family with brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. It's, it's just, that's the energy of it for him. In, in, this, in Joyce's case, it's, it's, you know, with his own schizophrenic daughter, right. who's probably the model for Issy, 
Um, and, you know, his wife, Nora, who's no doubt the model for Aunt Olivia Pluribel. And the jealousies and rivalries and the, 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 the sexual dynamic inside that family was, you know, obsessed Joyce from the time he was writing Finnegan's Wake, and I think he wrote it into Finnegan's Wake. It's not something you can prove. It's just something that you feel after, uh, after reading it as much as I have. You just feel that, that that for Joyce is the particular animus of it, the, yeah. the sexual energy of the family right. um, is something that he just he wrote about. That was a, a key subject for him. And it's in Finnegan's Wake. The issues of the book are, you know, what the father does, what the father does in relation to the daughter, what the brothers do in relation to the sister. That's, that's just part of the book, a huge part of the book. You see it in the, uh, uh, in the, in the school lesson, the, the kid's school lesson, which, you know, happens right before they go to bed. It's later on in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's where some of that dynamic plays out. It also plays out when Sean, who's a postman, um, is giving advice to the uh, to the young girl in the in the family. Um, Sean, Shem by this time has left for Europe. There are also you know various. One of the things that Joyce does, and it, I suppose it would confuse people, but one of the things he does is the family is all different ages. Well, they also have all different names. I mean, that's of course I mean, they have tons of. Names. But that part alone is so crazy. I mean, the family. You think it, it, the guy's name is Earwicker. Right. Uh, then you, then you, then it's H, just HCE, which still could be your worker. But then later on, it seems to be the Porter family, which is you know but an interesting name. Then where does Finnegan name. come in? I mean, isn't Finnegan? Well, Finnegan is Finn is Finn McCool. It's the Irish ballad Finnegan's Wake. Okay. Um, it, it's not. There's, there's nobody named Finnegan in the public in the in the uh, in, in the, the pub. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's either the Earwicker or the Porter family. But it's so funny because everybody, you know, on our message board is already call, referring to Finnegan as the one who's dead, who fell. And, you know, we're all trying to figure out what's just the basic, you know, plot there. Well, well, Finnegan, Finnegan is the one who fell right. in the Irish ballad. Right. Um, but it's but he's not the one. He's not the, the one. Of the, he's not the publican in the hotel, in the in the pub. Gotcha. It's at the corner of Phoenix uh, Park. That's H.C.E. That's, that's, that's H.C.E. or Henry Earwicker right. or Henry Chippenden Earwicker or somehow <laughs> it's the Porter family a little later on. And then we get this whole, I mean, like I mean, this in a section I only read, you know, a couple of days ago, we get the whole history of how he was named Earwicker suddenly. How he was named Earwicker, right. yeah. And the whole bit, bit with the bug. I mean, if right. if you want to have if you want to have a good time with the book, there's the, during the uh, the geometry lesson. Uh, the kids' geometry lesson. There's an illustration. I think it's on page 293, and it's just two circles and a triangle. And you could probably sort of rewrite the whole book from just all the things you could say about those two circles and the triangle. Wow! It's the, it's the diagram of the family. It's the diagram of Dublin. It's the diagram of the, uh, the the front and back end of a woman. The front and back end of a man. It's the portrait of an artist with you know two glasses. Um, it's uh, uh, everything is packed in everything is packed in that's the deal and what you pull out of it is what you can and if you can't pull out of it you know don't don't despair i mean just go on to the next paragraph the next sentence something good will happen do you have any other book that you would compare this to or equate this well to? I mean, or anything that yeah, you Ra- rabelais i mean it's close uh-huh. to the it, that's it's it's got to be some kind of a vast sort of encyclopedia that's yeah. that the, the intent of which is to, is to be ludicrous as well as serious 
Do you have a favorite? I'm going to ask you two. Do you have a favorite word and do you have a favorite sentence? Well, my favorite sentence has always been the uh, the, the pun on uh, the French, on the swaki mali pants, which means, you know, evil, evil to, 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 to he who thinks evil. And for Joyce, that's O'Neill saw Queen Molly's pants. I mean, that's, that's one of my, but I mean, that's the point. You could go over that a million times and, right. and not know it's Ani Swaki Mali Pont. But when you see it, if you see it, I think I just, it, it just, I think I just, I didn't even find it myself. I think I saw it in one of the, the uh, guidebooks. Yeah. And I just laughed for 15 minutes. I, I remember making a list of things, words and phrases that I liked from Fitting Its Wake once, and it just went on and on and on and still several notebooks. It's just, you can't pick one. There's, there's so many of them, and some of them are so clever, so good. All the stuff he does with Lewis Carroll, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's so good. Well, thank you so much, and I know our listeners really appreciate it because we're all feeling completely lost, but we're, we're building this community around being lost together which is that's right don't starting. worry <laughs> just have fun <laughs> awesome all right thank you so much professor Zaydel. okay great on the next literary disco guest author ivy pachota has selected Alyssa nutting's novel tampa for our live show thursday august 22nd at barnes and noble at the grove in los angeles california like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Follow us on Twitter at literary disco and check out our group on Goodreads. Thanks for listening.